Welcome to Objections to Objectivism, the podcast that examines the critiques and problems with Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism from a moderate point of view. I'm Patrick Shalopsky. I'm neither an objectivist nor an anti-objectivist, but I appreciate some aspects of the philosophy, and I'm learning more all the time. Please join me in doing so. Joining me today is Zach Schmidt. So, there are many who have studied objectivism far more than me, so please send in your feedback to objections to objectivism at gmail.com. That's objections to objectivism at gmail.com. So let's continue on. So your second uh, objection to objectivism you wanted to share with us. So w- you and I and others have talked a lot about modernism versus postmodernism and kind of where we're going in the, in the broader, like fundamental worldview aspect of, of philosophy. But you asked, is Rand just violently reacting to postmodernism? Could you explain first what is, what is postmodernism? Sure, absolutely. Postmodernism, if, if we can come to a, a definition of it, if we can somehow wrap it up, which it does not want to be, uh, which makes it very difficult to, to come up with some, some fundamentals for it. It, it, questions, it questions metanarrative. So it questions these, these things that have, have kind of permeated society, these things that we've kind of said, this is the truth or this is the greater story around an object. Um, and it says, you know, where did this come from and why? It questions the foundations of reason. It questions the foundations of logic. Um, and it, it, it is what Rand would describe as being mystical in nature, right? It doesn't have really a foundation to it because it's questioned so many foundations and, and seeks to, to critique the things that we would otherwise take, as, as for, take for granted in philosophy or theology, whatever it might be. That's a very high-level view of, of postmodernism. But, but what Rand seems to do is she seems to say that, that you can come to truth via your own reason, via your own understanding. And postmodernism would very much say that that's different. Your own reason, your own truth is coming from a society that is around you. Right? It's coming from the, the, the group that you grew up in, the experiences that you've been a part of, and the, the situations that have affected your life and shaped and molded mm-hmm. you. So... Rand takes that and says, no, there's nothing, we can come to to reason, we can come to truth on our own doing, and we can come, and it's by our own Mm self-interest. Postmodernism tends to point outward, modernism tends to point inward. And Rand, whether she likes it or not, is very modern in in her thinking. Yeah, I can see where Rand would be totally opposed to that. In your previous question, we talked about Rand's an extremist. This is an extreme position. So is postmodern the opposite extreme? And so that's kind of where how Rand got to be extreme. Is that what you're thinking? Well, it depends on what philosopher is purporting that that postmodern modern vision. Um, some are very extreme, and some are less so. Uh, I, I think what Rand has seen here, and, and it's funny, she she writes most of this around. It's kind of the 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 early. Um, conception stages of postmodernism. It hasn't really jumped on the scene yet, but you start to see small glimpses of it, right? And, and I think Rand understands that. Uh, a lot of it came out of the, the post-World War II environment um, where we, we had this idea of modernism, of reason, rationality, were king, right? Man was his own individual and we could come to truth objectively, right? After World War II, we start to question, after all the death and horror and intersection of that philosophy, we start to question, is that real? You know, can we come to truth? Why are societies so different? Why, why do the Russians say that the Americans are this, this great evil nightmare and the, the Americans say the same thing about the Russians? You know, who is right? Who is coming at this rationally? Rand starts to see that turn and I think objectivism 
in many ways, at least as she portrays it, particularly in Atlas Shrugged, uh, is this, this horrific tide that she's trying to, to rage against. And in fact, what she says in Atlas Shrugged, in my opinion, is more of a manifesto than it is a, a piece of philosophy. Now, she does go on to el elaborate it more in her later works. Um, but Atlas Shrugged itself seems to be pretty, pretty intimidated by this rise of something that would question reason, that would question the individual. Um, and, and her reaction to it seemingly isn't as well thought out because of her, her passion in opposition to the, the, the rising tide of, of what I see as postmodernism or as what she says as mysticism and a questioning of, of the foundations of reality. Okay, so you have, do you have an example of where uh, her passion overrode better judgment in your, in your thought here? Yeah, well, when, when talking about this idea of this rising of postmodernism, she describes them as the mystics of muscle and of spirit. And she writes, the mystics of muscle and of spirit have had the same motive throughout history, to undercut your mind and to rule you by force. She says, death is the only state that satisfies the mystic's desire for exemption from identity and causality. Poverty, suffering, destruction, and death are the consequences of their moral code and the real motive of the code. Mystics have defaulted on the responsibility to think, act, and produce. They feel envious hatred toward and wish to destroy those who have not defaulted. I think that's a pretty aggressive and... It's extreme. It's very extreme. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, it's not a rational argument against this, right? It, it seems mm -hmm. to be more of a reaction to me, an ad hominem, at these people who would disagree with her or at least would in some ways oppose that which she stands for. Mm -hmm. So is it almost like she's just asserting that this is so and being strong about it to emphasize it, not making a case for it? I don't think her case, at least in my experience with it through the, the piece in Atlas Shrugged, is, is that solid. I think that most of it is just, it's, there's a lot of passion and emotion, but in terms of the, the, the rational disagreement or the, the, the rational critique even of, of postmodernism, I, I, don't, I don't find it there. I find more of a, a, this is something that I don't like and that I don't want to see rise, and yet most of what she opposes and most of what she, she portrays in terms of postmodernism is that it, it supports death or is that it's a mystical movement that's, that's kind of rising and, and, and destroying society. But she doesn't really say why. Do you think she has a rational or a well-thought-out argument? Or is it, is it truly just like she came up with this philosophy out of passion, out of a reaction to the rise of communism, out of reaction to the rise of collectivism in the whole world, and her own reaction to it is is more visceral it's it's a great question and i, I don't want to get into the psychology of it right or, or sure where, where yeah. she where she came from in her, in her past yeah but but m my understanding of rand's philosophy and how she portrays the two systems of objectivism which is really modernism that has a a, a fresh coat of paint on paint on it and postmodernism, is that she she doesn't have any real interest in examining that philosophy, right? She's so set in her own, her own way of, of portraying objectivism that, that postmodernism isn't even something to be considered or to be argued against because it's so irrational. And, and I, I think in some ways, and I, I don't want to speak for Rand, but it's almost like she's uncomfortable with this idea that maybe reason isn't king. Ah, she's being just very defensive about it. I, she's... She's, see, she's seeing it might slip away and, and therefore redoubling the, the fortifications. <laughs> right. And I, I, think, I, I think that's what she tends to do. And 
there was an individual in her life who started an, an institute um, that supported objectivism. It was actually a, a kind of a, a group, a collective, a, a study of, of objective thought throughout history. And yeah, this, this is Nathaniel Brandon that you're talking about, that's right? That's correct, yeah. yes. Um, and, and at the, the end of, near the end of his life and near the end of his interactions with Rand, he apologized for contributing, quote, to that dreadful atmosphere of intellectual repressiveness that pervades the objectivist movement. Um, and this was one of the leading figures in it at, at one point. Mm-hmm. And so I think he sees this idea that, that there, aren't a lot, there isn't a lot of room for a, a dialogue or a discussion of ideas within the movement. It seems to want to react violently to the things that oppose it or the things that are not it, that are other. All right, yeah, and thus this podcast, because I want to be able to talk about things, question them, and uh, get to a better understanding. Now, there's more to this than just being anti postmodernism. I, I do see some substance to it. And I think one of my goals with this podcast is to explore whether that's true. A lot of people criticize Ayn Rand and say, well, this is not a real philosophy. This is, this is a, a, a novelist pretending to be a philosopher. And there's no serious rigor here. There's no, no serious student of philosophy once they get to the doctoral level would accept this as, as a real philosophy. And and that doesn't sit well with me either, because I see a lot of I see a lot of elitism, and I see a lot of fear of the philosophy embedded in that side as well. Kind of where I'm going more and more that I study this is that I really appreciate some of what Rand says, but boy, it can't go to that extreme. I I would agree. I, I think Rand in some ways understands she understands human nature to some degree, right? That 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 there is a desire for for rational self interest, right? I think every person, in some ways at some level wants to see their own success and wants to promote themselves in some meaningful way, right? There's a desire of, well, scripture calls it of the flesh, to, uh, to be selfish and to care about yourself above all others. So I, I think that she understands that aspect of it. And her, her portrayal of objectivism is better than her critique of, of other systems. Um, her critique of other systems is really non-existent in terms of its rationality. Some of what she portrays about objectivism, I think, bears merit. Um, and so that's, that's where I kind of land with, with Rand. Uh, we talked a lot about the influence of society on my decisions, the influence of others kind of collectively in the first question you had. But here you wanted to bring up the question of how other individuals might help me, might influence my decisions. I need, not only do I need the wisdom of others in general, I need the wisdom of specific other people. Uh, tell me more about that. Peyton Manning, one of the greatest NFL quarterbacks in the history of the league, went every summer to a training facility in Tennessee. And he didn't just go there and and throw footballs into a a garbage can and and go watch film in a dark room by himself. No, he'd hire a coach. And usually this was a coach who was himself a a former NFL quarterback. Maybe he had thrown 30 passes. One of the coaches uh, Peyton Manning brought in had, had only done that with just a couple passes in the NFL. And yet Peyton Manning would bring him in to help teach Peyton how to be better. Now, I don't think in terms of Rand's philosophy, that makes sense. And yet in the human experience with Peyton Manning, Peyton Manning wouldn't say that that quarterback was a better quarterback than he is. I don't think that that would ever come up. But he would say that that quarterback is able to see things in Peyton's game that Peyton would not otherwise be able to see himself. Yeah, and so Rand would say, oh, yeah, sure, Peyton Manning uh, would realize that this other quarterback is better in this one area that other person has something i value and so 
uh, a lot of her work is is showing people who pursue others because they have something that they value, right? Uh, oh, I, I'm I'm not as good at this. I need the, someone who is good at this to help me out, or I need to appreciate or love or cherish or gain from someone else who's better than me in this one area. Yeah, no, is that what you're talking about? Not not particularly. Right. I I, I think when we look at Peyton Manning um, and, and why he brings this quarterback in back in. It's not because that quarterback can offer something different to him that, that Peyton couldn't already get himself. Right? Peyton can go in a room and probably learn more um, in one sitting than, than most other people. He brings this quarterback in because this quarterback is going to be able to look at his game, Peyton Manning's game, and see things that Peyton Manning is otherwise blinded to. Right, right. Peyton has no idea what, where his flaws are, and he doesn't doesn't see someone else that can find them necessarily. He just wants another set of eyes, another skilled, highly successful person to help him out. But these are things that, that Peyton on his own would not be able to see. Right. Right? Yeah. So it, it's not something where Peyton Manning is, is saying, you know, uh, this guy has something to offer. It's something where, where Peyton is, is looking at this and saying, you know, I can't see everything in my own game. I'm blinded to certain elements of myself. Right? So I am limited. And that's why I need to go out and interact with other individuals who can show me things about myself that I otherwise would not be able to see. Peyton Manning doesn't bring in another quarterback who is really good at, at accurate passing or it really knows how to anticipate the route changes that his receivers are going to make or anything like that. No, he brings in someone that can really scrutinize all aspects of his game and, and serve as a sounding board, a coach, just another set of eyes. Is that right? That's correct, yeah. He's, he's looking at and identifying things that, that when you do things at a repetitive level that you can't see because this is just the way you've always done it. Um, and even if you've thought about it and looked at it and, and tried to find ways to, to, to make it better, that second set of eyes, that second perspective, is still able to see and contextualize things in a way that you cannot on your own. So is there a danger of doing that too much? I think of Peter Keating in The Fountainhead, who was an architect who built his buildings, designed his buildings in such a way that it pleased his clients, it pleased the critics, it pleased everyone he came into contact with, and he became a great architect in the eyes of society. But inwardly, he felt himself a fraud. He felt that he, um, yes, he had accomplished many things by synthesizing all these viewpoints, but it was never his. It was never something that came out of him. And so for, for both Rourke and for Keating himself, his accomplishments were meaningless. Um, is there a danger of that? Is there a danger of too mu- doing too much of what others want, receiving too much coaching and not enough of what comes out of your own self? I, I think that the difference is this. Tim Tebow, for instance, a great quarterback in, in some ways, um, but not fundamentally, right? Mm-hmm. So he had kind of this moxie behind him. Um, and he brought in a bunch of coaches to say, you know, what's wrong with me? What am I doing differently? And he, they'd try to change it, and it wouldn't work. The difference between Peyton Manning and other quarterbacks like that um, is a difference of timidity versus humility. And I'm not saying that the Tim Tebow is, is timid, um, but at the same time, there's this idea of you don't know what's wrong, so you're trying to find a bunch of different people to show you the different things. Whereas with Peyton Manning, he knows who he is. He knows what he wants to do. He has a, a foundation there. He acknowledges his, his individuality and, and his own style of play, but he also says that there are ways that that can be improved. So it's an acknowledgement of, of where you are and where you need to be. 
and you know that you can't get there on your own. And that's kind of what Peyton Manning seems to do, right? Is he doesn't go around and, and try to find someone to give a different opinion just to give a different opinion, but he does try to find that outside perspective because he knows that there are things that he doesn't know and that he can't see. So is it a matter of getting yourself right on the big things and having everyone else fill in the gaps and, and make little nudges and corrections? Or is it, it could it be more about fundamental things as well, where um, my, my overall purpose is, is, needs to be questioned, my overall direction of something needs to be coached? I think it can be both depending on where you're at. So I, I think Peyton understood where he's at in the situation, and he knows that it's, it doesn't need to be a fundamentally changed motion. doesn't need to switch from his right hand to his left hand, um, but he does need to make small adjustments because um, he knows what works and what has, has been, in his experience, something that, that has made him successful. Whereas I think in the other circumstances, when you don't have that body of work behind you, there is that tendency to say, hey, you know, I'm going to go out, I'm going to try a bunch of things differently, to see where you know what to see what winds up happening, and that's from a place of, of humility because it's a place where you don't understand the nature of yourself. You don't understand the things that you're you're good and bad at. Right, and I guess that's where Rand would would hate that. Right, she's saying you're you're humble. You have all this humility. You don't know who yourself are. You you are not thinking. You are not living because you don't know what you think. And I think your point is, well, not so much. You can. You can know some things and not others, and it's all it's kind of a matter of degrees there. Yeah, I can't imagine being at either extreme. I can't imagine having no individuality, and I can't imagine subverting entire my entire individuality to society or to even to other individuals, my, my family or something. I have this impression and inclination to want to increase my individuality, and I want a lot of others to do the same because I see maybe some of the same problems that Rand saw with society, with our culture, with the world way the world's going. I, I, I guess I'm grateful to Rand for making her points. I'm grateful to Rand for her position. We need someone extreme so we can get closer to that extreme. But as for objectivism per se, as for going all the way there, if a, a football player had that attitude, they'd never receive coaching from anyone and they'd be all over the map in terms of skill and the people who have the best potential would not become the best football players necessarily. And, and so, so it is with any discipline. Um, we need a great deal of individual drive, of ambition, of self-esteem, purpose, and we need it indeed to be governed by reason, like Rand would say. But we also need others to help us, whether it's individuals or the collective. And I think that's what you're getting at. And, and gosh, it's for hard for me to argue against. Sorry, one thing I, I really respect about Rand, she seems to really embody her own philosophy, which I really respect. She has this uh, idea where when listing her philosophical background. She says that there's only three philosophers with the name, with the, the first letter of their name being A that you need to pay attention to. Aristotle, Aquinas, and Ayn Rand. I, I think a lot of her shortcomings in her presentation of objectivism is the fact that she doesn't acknowledge the historical underpinnings of it. And she kind of brings it up as this is the, this is the field of philosophy that I am creating, that I am the master of. And because of that, it seems to in some ways fall apart at points and becomes more of an impassioned plea than it does a philosophical system. And I think Rand in some ways fall, falls into the, the, the trap of her philosophy where she doesn't have that outside perspective. She doesn't have that, that, that idea of, you know, these are some things that, that, that could be better. These yeah, she avoided it at any cost, right? She, yeah. she refused to engage with the philosophical uh, intelligentsia of her time. Right, right. Mm -hmm. She didn't want that critique. And whenever it would come up, she would react 
violently against it. Mm-hmm. And, and she, lived her life as, she lived her life as an individual. She lived her, her life in many ways apart from that collective society that she, she didn't like. Um, and I respect that, but at the same time, you see the shortcomings of it, even in her own philosophical system and her own embodiment of it. It's one thing to just say, you don't have to go as far as Ayn Rand, which is kind of where I'm at. But do you have any better guidance than that? Can you give um, some thoughts on how we should maintain our individuality, maintain our reason, our purpose, our self-esteem without, without totally eschewing society, without refusing coaching from others? Uh, you know, at the beginning of the episode, we mentioned, you know, my, my, my interest in, in theology, and I think that drives a lot of my philosophy. And in my own personal philosophy, having examined so many different, different fields, I think the one that, that to me is most compelling is the Christian narrative. And the reason is, is because this. I think it understands human nature, right? Humans are created in such a way. They're created in, in what, what the Bible says is the image of God. And in that image, um, they, have indiv- they have power in and of themselves. They have the ability to reason and to create and to rule over the earth on their own, right? Adam's in the garden by himself, and he is kind of that first individual. And yet God sees that that is not good, and he creates the community of Eve. And that community is what he always seems to be drawing us back to, right? So even when Christ comes, we see this idea of the, the individual um, giving up himself, right? Sacrificing himself, um, and following something greater in Christ, right? Jesus says um, to, to pick up your cross daily and to follow him. So you give up yourself in order to follow something greater. And in the midst of that, it says that he is creating us to be who we truly are, who we truly are meant to be. He's making us into a new humanity, it says in Romans. And in that, in that surrendering of ourselves, we are able to see ourselves as the individual, as the being that we are meant to be. Romans says that we are made free from the, the constraints, from the chains of the flesh, and made into the heavenly being that we are, are created to be. We, we, are something, we are something that is unique, and yet it is something that exists within community and makes that community stronger because of its uniqueness. The community makes the individual stronger because of the, the things that it will bring out in that individual. So. All right, so all the objectivists right now are screaming their heads off and, <laughs> and uh, probably never going to listen to this podcast again, but... So in your view, Christianity provides us with a better balance of these two. Still, would you say it's more individualist first and then community, or can't you even go that far? I I really think, and this is going to sound, this is going to just be nails on a chalkboard for some people, I think it transcends that. Um, I I think it it takes the ideas of community, it takes the ideas of individualism, and it it marries them in such a way that, that no other philosophy does. That... There is room for both individuality and community within the system. Um, you're not separating yourself from your own individuality, and yet you are becoming part of something greater. And I think that that's the best marriage of it in, in any philosophical system that I have yet seen. All right, I'll leave it at that. Thanks for coming on the show, and I really appreciate all your insights. And uh, we'll talk again soon. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. All right. So thank you for listening. Please send in your feedback to objections to objectivism at gmail.com.